This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. At least one in seven children in the United States experienced child abuse and or neglect in 2019. In 2018, the last full year for which statistics are available, nearly 680,000 children were victims of abuse or neglect, and nearly 1,770 children died in this country because of that abuse or neglect. It wasn't much better in 2017, by the way, a year in which 1,710 children died because of such abusive behavior. In 2018, close to 61% of these nearly 680,000 children were victims of neglect, while nearly 11% were physically abused and 7% were sexually abused. More than 100,000 of these children were victims of two or more types of abuse. The topic for this week, therefore, is child abuse of every kind and what Judaism has to say about it. And no, spare the rod and spoil the child is not the Jewish view. We'll get to that. First, though, we'll begin by focusing on probably the cruelest form of abuse of children, sexual abuse. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, Every nine minutes, a child is abused sexually. Every nine minutes. And 82% of them are young girls. I want to welcome back to this podcast someone who wants to focus America's attention on this national disgrace in a very dramatic way. And then I'm going to ask you all to help her accomplish that goal. She's Ginger Britt Daniels whom some of you may remember from an earlier podcast in which we discussed animal rights. Ginger is a singer and an actress. It's as an actress that she conceived of the vehicle she hopes will put a strong spotlight on the sexual abuse of children, mainly young girls. I apologize in advance for the audio quality of this interview because it's not all that great. But I think that Ginger's project is really very, very important, and it's something you should be aware of, and hopefully that you would support. After the interview, I have a lot more to say. Thank you for being here, Ginger. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. The last time you were on, we were discussing animal rights. We have at least an equally important, if not more important, issue to discuss. So why don't you describe just what it is that we are going to discuss? Childhood sexual abuse and the trauma that that can cause for a woman of any age. I think it's an important thing to talk about, and it's rarely discussed I have written a short film that is a female-driven cop drama slash mystery in which the main character is struggling with the past because of the case that she's working on. Why would you want to get involved with a process like that? Because it's such a sensitive subject matter and people are uncomfortable about it. 
So I think it's an important thing to put out there to make people less uncomfortable and, and maybe encourage those that have had a similar experience to not be afraid to come forward because it happens way more than anyone really cares to know about. What would you like to happen with this thing? I would like to bring an awareness to that subject. I am an L.A.-based actress, and the film is being shot in New York because I like New York. I lived there for a long time, and I have a lot of very talented friends who wanted to join me in this endeavor on this project. How much of a problem is this? It's really common among people that you know, whether they be a family member or someone's father that you are around a lot. And I wanted to draw attention to that, that it's definitely not just something that happens with a stranger. It might not have been during their childhood, but at some point in their life, there has been some sort of sexual misconduct against women in general. How long have you been planning this film and working on its preliminaries? I've been thinking about it for a very long time. I did draw from my own experience. It's not my story, but it is loosely based around experiences that I've encountered. So I've been thinking about it for a long time and how I wanted to have that depicted, how I wanted to tell a story. And I, so I started writing it and getting it out of my brain and onto paper, I would say about six months ago. And it's changed and evolved um, over time. And it became more of a reality in the last couple of months of making it an actual film. You say some of it is loosely based. Do you want to elaborate on that a little? Were you sexually abused as a child? Yes. Yes. By someone you knew? Yes. I won't explore the issue any further. What support are you getting from organizations that deal with such things? We have not gotten any support from the actual organizations yet, but I wanted to find one that I could give back to on a national level. I always try to give back to the community in some way. So I would like to help them. I would like to help those who are maybe afraid to come forward, to not be afraid, and I'd like to just draw awareness to the subject matter. So I have contacted them, reached out to them. I haven't heard from them yet. But I am planning to give them a percentage of the money that I raise towards the making of this film. I didn't want to just have it go to one local organization. That's why I chose a national one. But you say you have support from your friends with their stories. How do you think it's affected those people? How did their experiences inform their lives? I would say that something like that happening when you're a child, obviously very traumatic, but experience itself, depending on how it's handled, with if you tell someone or you don't, I mean, there are a lot of different avenues to explore there. But it is, it is scarring. It is damaging as far as the innocence is lost. Women aren't supposed to experience that as their first sexual encounter. So that is pretty awful. So I would say it can make women, depending on the level of abuse as well, as they grow up, 
very either timid to be with a man or scared about that, or they can make them really overtly sexual people because they were mis the whole situation was misunderstood. Are they damaged by this? I think there's damage and then if you get help to handle and deal with the trauma of something like that, that it is definitely not something that you have to carry forever. It's always there, but it doesn't have to own you. I, I definitely went to years of therapy. That definitely helped. I don't let it own who I am as a person. I think you can draw strength from that because you would never allow that in your life again. So that's a good thing. You can also help others who may have gone through something like that. You are a very strong person. You are also a very involved person and a very caring person. How much of that relates to overcoming what happened to you at the time? Oh no, I think I would be who I am anyway. And I think the fact that I didn't lose myself completely is a pretty big deal because that could happen. I definitely haven't allowed that to cloud who I am. And that's good. I think I would have been who I am anyway. Well, <laughs> I certainly hope you would have been who you were. I wouldn't want an experience like that to be the, the catalyst for your, for all of your good deeds. Which are, you know, <laughs> um, and you have a good heart, you know that. You know what I think about you and your heart. You have a Jewish heart, which one of these days I'm going to actually prove it to you. Thank you. So, you want to film in New York? Yes. I assume you're the executive producer, by the way. Yes, and I do. I do have a wonderful producing partner now, and now she's brought in another partner that she works with a lot. So we we are getting ourselves. Together. Together. Yes, we're in the casting process right now. It's really fun. I just got a very, very talented actress I've known for a long time attached to this, and that's exciting. It's coming together. It's going to happen regardless. But I would like to get some help so that I don't have to break my bank for this. This is going to cost a little bit of money, and I have started a crowdfunding uh, campaign on Indiegogo to raise money and for a film, and but also to raise money for the National Center for Domestic and Sexual Violence, because I think it's important to give back in any artistic endeavor. How much do you anticipate this is going to cost? Around $10,000. $10,000 for the movie. Yes, because it's a short, and it doesn't have a million people in it, and it's not, there aren't a lot of stunts and things that are difficult to portray. I got very creative with what I know, because I've made small films before, what I know can get in the way and hinder and cost more and take up too much money and time. I wrote it in a way that it would help us to be able to do it. This is very small. Micro-budget, I applied for SEG after that micro-budget agreement. That's what we're probably doing. So I, we really would like to draw awareness and get into some festivals and get noticed for what we achieve here, hopefully, right? That's the end outcome. So this all started because the more I told my own truth, the better the story became. So authenticity is always a good thing. 
you keep saying it's a short film. How short a film is it? Well, between 15 and 20 minutes. When would you like to begin production, and when would you like to have it all in the can? We've already started our pre-production right now, and I would like to start shooting around November 1st, and we're hoping to have it done in a week. It depends on how many characters you have, how many locations you have, all of that. Give me a sales pitch. Uh, I wasn't fully prepared for this. <laughs> I want to ask my listeners to consider donating. Thank you for that. I really believe that the best selling point, aside from helping artists like myself, is to tell a story. That's important. But aside from that, the most important thing is that, like I said, I really want to give back to a community of people that are dealing with this sort of trauma. So that's why I'm giving to the National Center for Domestic and Sexual Violence. So any any contribution, no matter how small, a good percentage of that is going towards that organization. I, I think that just knowing that you're helping someone in that has suffered an unimaginable trauma, that is worth a few dollars, right? I mean, so how would they go about donating to your call? The film is called Not Like the Other Girls. And it can be found through a search on Indiegogo, I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. So if you go to that site and you pull in that title, not like the other girls, I will pop up and there it will be. Thank you again, Ginger, for being here. As always, I'm in awe of your passion for all creatures great and small, human or otherwise, and especially those who can't help themselves. So now, let's turn our attention to Judaism and its take on violence of any kind against children. People attribute the adage, spare the rod and spoil the child, to the biblical book of Proverbs, but it's actually a line from a mid-17th century satirical narrative poem by Samuel Butler, and it really has no relationship whatever to the book of Proverbs, not even close. Proverbs, though, does say much the same thing in its own way. For example, it says, quote, He who spares the rod hates his son, unquote. Proverbs warns us to, quote, not withhold discipline from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Beat him with a rod, and you will save him from the grave, unquote. It also says, quote, Rod and reproof produce wisdom, unquote. A few of our sages of blessed memory and some of the rabbis who came after them took these verses much too literally. But it's important to note that these verses come from the book of Proverbs, not from the Torah, which in no way condones committing violence of any kind on children. And the Torah is the only book of the Tanakh, the only book of the Bible from which we get our laws. Proverbs is a book filled with aphoristic advice, but that advice comes from its authors, just as the opinions of some of our sages and rabbis after them on such matters are just that, their opinion. They're not from God. As I said, God's Torah knows nothing about committing violence of any kind on children. But wait a minute, I hear some say. 
Doesn't the Torah tell us that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son? Isn't that God commanding Abraham to commit violence against the child, and an extreme one at that? And doesn't God elsewhere in the Torah also say that parents can have their son executed if he consistently refuses to listen to them? Yes, the Torah says both things, but it doesn't say what the words seem to suggest. And, as a prominent conservative authority on Jewish law, Rabbi Elliot Dorf put it, quote, The classical rabbis of the Jewish tradition, those who wrote the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Midrash, certainly understood that to be the case, for rabbinic law assumes that we do not have the right to strike others, unquote, regardless of who those others may be, including children. The Akedah, the so-called binding of Isaac, is a case in point. Said God, quote, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you, unquote. That certainly sounds as though God is commanding Abraham to kill Isaac, but it's actually the opposite. God, after all, doesn't let Abraham go through with it. Here's what the late and sorely missed British Orthodox rabbi, philosopher, theologian, and former chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, had to say, quote, The conventional reading of this passage is that Abraham was being asked to show that his love for God was supreme by being willing to sacrifice the son for whom he had spent a lifetime waiting, unquote. That conventional reading, however, ignores the problems it creates. The first problem is twofold. On the one hand, the Torah abhors child sacrifice, and it makes that point in clear and unambiguous terms several times. On the other, in Rabbi Sachs's words, quote, Abraham was chosen to be a role model as a father, unquote. God, after all, said as much in explaining why Abraham was chosen to be the founding father of Am Yisrael, the people Israel. Quote, For I have chosen him so that he will instruct his children and his household after him, keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just. Unquote. Asked Rabbi Sachs, quote, How could Abraham serve as a role model? if what he was prepared to do is what his descendants were commanded not to do? How could he serve as a model father if he was willing to sacrifice his child?" Unquote. To understand the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, Rabbi Sachs wrote, we have to realize that much of the Torah, Genesis in particular, is a polemic against worldviews the Torah considers pagan, inhuman, and wrong. And prominent among those worldviews was that children were the property of their fathers. The property of their fathers only, mind you. Their mothers had no say. Wrote Rabbi Sachs, in the ancient world, quote, the authority of the head of the family, the pater familias, was absolute. He had power of life and death, over his wife and children. Children have the status of property rather than persons in their own right. This idea persisted even beyond the biblical era in the Roman law principle of patria potestas, 
means power of the Father. The Torah is opposed to every element of this worldview, unquote. Rabbi Sachs then relates the Torah's opposition to patria potestas to the Akeda story. God, he wrote, quote, wanted to establish as a non-negotiable principle of Jewish law that children are not the property of their parents. As long as parents believed they owned their children, the concept of the individual could not yet be born. The fundamental unit was the family. The Torah represents the birth of the individual as the central figure in the moral life. Because children, all children, belong to God, parenthood is not ownership, but guardianship. As soon as they reach the age of maturity, children become independent moral agents with their own dignity and freedom, unquote. That age of maturity in Jewish law is 13 years old for a boy and 12 years old for a girl. There is that law in Deuteronomy, however, that I mentioned that not only seems to recognize violence against children, it actually seems to command the most extreme form of violence, execution. Here's what it says, quote, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid." Unquote. This law, too, doesn't say what the words seem to say. This law actually was intended to limit patria potestas, to limit the powers of the father in a number of ways, including by requiring both parents to make the request, something the Torah assumed could never happen. Even if a father wanted his son executed, the Torah assumed that no mother would ever consent. In other words, this law denied the father the right to punish his rebellious son as he alone saw fit. Because, as I've noted several times in the past, the laws in the Torah are really merely chapter headings for actual law, requiring the enabling legislation of the oral law to make them operative, our sages of blessed memory parsed every word of this law to determine what it actually says. They ruled, for example, that if the father wanted to bring his son before the community's elders, which the sages interpreted, by the way, as a three-judge panel, he had to have the approval of the child's mother, and she was required to be with him when he presented his case. Neither parent could be disabled in any way that could be viewed as impairing his or her judgment. If the father refused to go along with the request, or if she was no longer alive, the father was barred from presenting the case to the elders. Our sages also interpreted what a son meant. In other Torah laws involving children and parents, the Torah uses the word man, never son. It does so here, though, prompting the sages to say that this rebellious son had to be at least 13 years old, because only then is he responsible for his own actions, 
Also, not a single pubic hair could be found on him because at that point he's considered a man. And the Torah says, son, period. The sages also imposed a three-month time limit on what son meant in that verse. Because the Torah uses the word son rather than man, which includes all adult children, male and female, the sages said this law does not apply to daughters, only to sons. The sages also ruled that the son had to be repeatedly guilty of defying his parents, including stealing from them and frequently cursing them. And he had to be known as a profligate and a drunkard in the eyes of the law. In other words, he had to be known for routinely eating meat and drinking wine in the company of idlers and miscreants, not the sort of behavior common among 13-year-olds, especially not in their first three months after their 13th birthdays. That's why the revered sage Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai could say that, quote, there never was nor ever will be a rebellious son, unquote. The enabling legislation of our sages made it impossible for this law to ever be implemented. If so, then, why is this law in the Torah at all? In Bar Yochai's view, it was meant to encourage parents to bring up their children properly. I would argue that the law was at least also meant to be a the boogeyman will get you warning meant to keep children from committing horrible wrongs. Interestingly, Rabbi Sachs would seem to agree, quote, perhaps the law was meant to be recited to such a child in order to persuade him to mend his ways, unquote. Child abuse of every kind exists in the Jewish world as it does in the broader world outside our own. The bottom line, though, is that Judaism abhors such violence, just as it does spousal abuse, which we'll discuss in my next podcast, God willing, barring another major issue requiring immediate comment. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org, www.shammai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish standard, but want to read my columns, go to the column page of my website. Once again, I want to urge you to support Gingerbread Daniel's project. Ginger, how about telling them, once again, how they can do so? The film is called Not Like the Other Girls, and it can be found through a search on Indiegogo, I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. So if you go to that site and you plug in that title, not like the other girls, there it will be. Seriously, everyone, we may be talking about a 15-minute film, but it is a very important 15-minute film. Have a great week. Stay healthy and stay safe.